This morning, as we consider Revelation uh, chapter 4, remember that we have just spent um, about seven weeks, okay, seven weeks on the churches, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And these seven churches teach us something, because if you remember at the very end of each one of these passages where Jesus speaks to the church, he, he says something, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we learn from these seven churches, and from Ephesus, we, we learned that the gospel spread around the world through the church of Ephesus. They were a busy church, they were doing a lot of work, they had solid doctrine, but they had left their first love. And the church of Ephesus reminds us that even if our beliefs are right, and even if our actions are right, we have to make sure that we have relationship with Christ because that's what it's all about. Outside of relationship, we're just going through, um, you know, just serving and going through doing things. But notice that the correction that God gives to each of these seven churches is not about doing more. It's about being. It's about what they believe. It's about their relationship with Christ. And so when we consider the church of Ephesus, we, we receive that message and and we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be Christians or individuals that has left our first love, right? We want to continue to grow in our, our walk with God. The church of Smyrna was a suffering church. There was no uh, condemnation. There were no corrections that Jesus mentions to them other than the fact that they were to remain faithful, even in the midst of difficulty to continue to remain faithful. To the church of, of Pergamos, um, this church where um, they indulged in the things of the world, God had nothing good to say. Jesus doesn't give them any commendation. One of the only churches where there's no positive things. And, and he tells them what to do, and he tells them to make sure that they stay true to sound doctrine because they started to drift. In uh, the church of Thyatira, it's like the church of the dark ages. Uh, do you remember when I showed the, the picture? It says uh, tolerance. And it says, I do not think you know the meaning of that word. Um, tolerance doesn't mean that we believe everything equally. Okay? Tolerance doesn't mean that, that your beliefs are equal to my beliefs. It means that we love people even with different beliefs, even through that. But remember that when it comes to tolerance, we're to hold fast to the truth. Um, uh, an early church historian and theologian wrote this. In the essentials, unity... And the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In the essentials of the Christian faith, we should be unified. Jesus is God. He came in the form of a man. He died for our sins. He rose again. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And that's it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's some essentials to our faith that we should be unified in. But then there's going to be some differences. People will have a different eschatology. People will have different views about the the um, nature of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's going to be some of those non-essentials in which there's liberty. But in all things, there should be charity. There should be love for people that are different than you or different than me in the way that we see these little nuances and important parts of the Christian life. But there should be that absolute love. So to the church of Thyatira, one of the important things is to have this love for people but not to compromise. The church of Thyatira began to compromise just um, based on letting the teachings of a woman like Jezebel coming in to the church. The church of Sardis was the dead church. They had a great reputation and a great name, but spiritually they were dead. 
And what was it that they needed? They needed the Holy Spirit. They needed a a fresh filling of the Spirit. They needed to be regenerated because some of them didn't know Christ. And regeneration is not something that we do. It's something that God does to change us from the inside out. And then the Church of Philadelphia was this um, small church. He said that you have little strength, but he told them to endure suffering. And Jesus, who is alive, reminds them that he's holding the door open for them. They may not have seen themselves as anything special, but Jesus commends them as this church that had open doors. And then last week, the church of Laodicea, this was the lukewarm church. They, they thought they were rich and had need of nothing, and they didn't realize that they were naked and poor and blind. And what Jesus says to them is, become zealous. He said, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth strong, strong language from Jesus. But he tells them that they can repent because it's possible for them to repent. And so now we get to Revelation chapter four and it's after Revelation chapters two and three, which deals with the church. Chapter four is a turning point for the whole book of Revelation. It's what most people think about when they think about the book of Revelation. If, um, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time in the 1970s, uh, do any of you remember a book by a guy named Hal Lindsey? Anyone know what it was called? The Late Great Planet Earth, all right? That was like this big thing about how, you know, just about end times, about eschatology, about prophecy and what's going to happen. And then in the 80s and actually more the 90s, there was a series of books by Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry Jenkins. You remember, what is that called? Left Behind. All right, and if you read those books, you know, some of our kids had the children's versions of those books. They kind of dealt with that. And when most people think of Revelation, they think of those aspects of the book of Revelation. And for us, as we look at this section going forward and, and thinking about prophecy, I think it begs the question when we look at our world today um, is this all that there is? Is this it? Like, we have elections that are coming up, right? And, and there's a lot of voting. And this is going to be one of the most controversial elections in, in our, our history. I mean, it is, it is very controversial. And, and there are some people that their soul, their hope is in a, a candidate or, or a political party or a system. Now, God has called us as citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're also citizens here. Like Paul was a citizen of Rome. He appealed to um, his Roman citizenship. We should uh, be involved in a process. We should pray. We should speak truth. We should um, support candidates that we believe that would be good and, and propositions that are good. But let me tell you that that is not my hope. My hope is in Christ. And so when we open up to the book of Revelation, one of the things that it reminds us of is it reminds us that God is still in control no matter what happens in this world. Remember that the book of Revelation was a book that was delivered to these churches during periods of uh, persecution, difficult times, and the book of Revelation was meant to bring them comfort. Let me tell you what um, some of the, the states now that as the Soviet Union broke up and the individual countries, but some of the books, one of the main books that these countries, these people groups read during times of intense persecution is the book of Revelation. The underground church 
read the book of Revelation to be reminded that Jesus is in control. The same thing is true during the, the Cultural Revolution in Communist China. And when the Chinese Communist government took over and they said, hey, these certain sanctioned churches, you could go ahead and teach the Bible, but rip, we're going to rip out the book of Revelation. Because we want your hope to be in the state. We want your hope to be in the government, not in some other king or some future kingdom. So the book of Revelation should give us, in a sense, comfort. It should bring us hope. But when we look at these things and the end of history and what will I see when I die and what's after this world, sometimes attitudes about eschatology or the study of future things, sometimes those attitudes can kind of taint the way that we see the book of Revelation. Some people open up the book of Revelation with fear. It, it's like a fearful thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to Idaho. I'm going to dig a well. I'm going to buy property, get guns, and we're going to make a compound. Okay, and this is where we're going to live, and we're going to hold up until like they come for us. That's, that's some people's attitudes about the book of Revelation, in a sense. There's other people that it's escapism. Uh, my brother, uh, when he was in high school, it was just great. He was so expectant of Jesus' return and, and the rapture that his senior year, he went from A's and B's to all D's and F's. And when he got called into the office and my parents confronted him, He's like, why study? Jesus is coming back. Like, why, why do we have to do this? Because Jesus is going to come back, so this isn't even important stuff. So there is also an attitude. Some people are distracted. The cares of this world make this seem like so far off that, that I'm only into what I can see and what's tangible and my job and my experience right now, and this is the most important thing. And so there's some people that they're distracted. There are other attitudes of doubt. I, I don't really believe that Jesus is coming back. I don't really believe that he could call us. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian and all, and I believe in God, but I'm not, I'm not so sure about this part of the Bible. And then there's another attitude, which I hope that we have, and it's this. It's hopeful. I hope that when we read the book of Revelation that we're motivated to reach people. I hope that when we read the book of Revelation that we're looking for Jesus' return. I hope that it brings comfort and hope knowing that he's in control and he hasn't left us behind and he's not going to just leave us in this world without this um, blessed hope of expectation. And when you read the epistles and, and people like Paul the Apostle, he was so motivated by this. He was so motivated that Jesus could come back at any moment that he was just going through the churches of Revelation, the, the seven churches, and he's going through Asia Minor, and he's trying to plant as many churches as fast as he can because he doesn't know how much time that he has. And that's the attitude that we should have. It's not escapism. It's not fear. It's not being distracted or doubtful, but it's being hopeful. One of the questions we ask is, are we living in the last days? Well, I do know this. Jesus is closer to coming now than he was yesterday, right? And, and I remember when my friend said this. We were talking on the phone, and I, I had just turned 40. And um, he said, Matt, Jesus is coming for you. In our, our, he's coming for us in our lifetime. And in the next 50 years or so, he's coming for us at least. And I'm like, how do you know? He said, because either he's coming or we're going right? Either he's coming or we're going. But the attitude, the realization is this. 
whether it would be at the end of 2012, do you remember the Aztec calendar running out? Do you remember all of the, the kind of hype about that? Some of you remember in the year 2000, you remember Y2K? Like, you better back up all your computers, and you better not have anything digital. Cause, and, and I remember at midnight, you know, the night before watching, because it, it came January 1st, 2000, over in Asia. And I'm like, well, they're not wiped out yet. You know, they're, they're, they're still there, you know. It's like they're not disappearing. There's no supernova. There's natural disasters that happen. There's wars. There's rumors of wars. But even with all of this controversy, and sometimes we could take some things that are happening and go, well, that's it, and this is the time. I, I hope that when we look at our world and we realize that if things start to get worse, we should look up. Jesus says, when you see these things taking place, look up for your redemption draws near. So there should be a hope that we have. And it shouldn't be a, a gloom and doom type of attitude. And with all of this controversy and hype, it is still important that we understand that biblical prophecy is real and it's true. It's one of the things that sets this book apart from any other religious book. The word of prophecy, the spirit of Jesus is the word of prophecy. And even when Jesus came, the Old Testament, when it was written, was prophetic about Jesus' coming. And so when we read the Bible, prophecy is the assurance that this is a supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired book and shows us that God keeps his promises. So what I hope to do today during this service um, is to answer some of those questions from the word of God. And again, remembering this, that there are different views. In the non-essentials, there li there's liberty. And so as I go through this, realizing that other people may have different views, um, one of my good friends uh, that's a pastor here in, in uh, Aptos, you know, he's, he, his view is preterism. So what his view is, is all of the book of Revelation, just about, has already taken place during that first century. And what we're reading, instead of reading future things, we're reading church history. Now, we agree on, on so many other things. I disagree with him on that. And you know what we do? We drink coffee together, and we talk about it, and we laugh. And we actually kind of make fun of each other and our views. And we laugh, and we have fellowship together. And, and in a sense, you know what? He's still preaching the gospel. People are still growing and getting saved. But it is important some of these non-essential things are important nevertheless. So if you're visiting today or uh, if you're a new believer or if you've never heard any of this or if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's a great day to be here to study the word of God in Revelation chapter 4. So remember this, the book of Revelation means unveiled or revealed. So Jesus is revealing himself. And in Revelation 119, he gives us this outline for the book of revelation it says when jesus spoke um to john write the things or the angel speaks uh, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this so john wrote about things he has seen in the past um write those things down john what you just saw write them down and then things that are in the present the church age church history and chapters two and three of revelation and then there's this turning point here things which will pl take place after this. And the word in the Greek is metatauta, after these things. And chapter four begins with the word after these things. Now some working definitions for us. Maybe you've never heard the word rapture or maybe you've heard different things about the word rapture. 
Um, and, and if you have studied the rapture, then people will say, well, that word doesn't occur in the Bible. We don't, we don't see that word in the Bible, which is true. You don't see the English word rapture. But it comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to be caught up in the Latin Vulgate when it translated into Latin from Greek. It's the word rapturous, and that's a word that we see is this word where we get the word rapture in the English. It's when Jesus takes those who know him, who are born again, who have um, been regenerated, he takes them with him before the wrath of God is poured out on the face of the whole world. Now, when it comes to God's wrath, it's called the Great Tribulation. Um, Anyone know other names for the Great Tribulation? The day of the Lord, Jacob's trouble. Anyone hear that one? Okay, that that specifically, there's Israel that's a part of that. Um, it's also called the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. Can you imagine that? Like when when my kids go to a petting zoo and there's little sheep, I mean, ah, you know, like I've never seen a little kid mauled by the wrath of the Lamb. You know, can you imagine a horror movie, The Wrath of the Lamb? Ah, you know, they go into a petting zoo and like they, they get attacked or something. And that's how, how bad do you have to be to get a, a, a lamb mad, you know, to want to attack you in that way. But Jesus is the lamb of God. So even though people say, well, we've always had tribulation. The church has always suffered persecution. The persecution that we go through today is from the world. The persecution that is happening with ISIS in the Middle East, that's from the world. Those are from people. The wrath of the lamb is when God himself pours out his wrath and that is something the world has not seen and that is a worldwide tribulation that that it's going to speak of now this seven-year period uh, of tribulation or the the great tribulation um there are some people that believe that the church is taken before the tribulation which i believe there's some people that think that it's in the middle of this tribulation or after this tribulation and again godly scholarly Smarter people than me have believed all of those positions. But yet when we look at these things, it's important that I I believe that if the tribulation is called the wrath of the lamb, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus when Jesus died for my sins on the cross. The blessed hope of the gospel is this, that I don't have to suffer the wrath of God because I've been saved and covered by the blood of Christ. So that's the greatest evidence to me that, that God takes us before that tribulation period. Again, in, in, um, in the non-essentials, there's liberty. And if you have a different view, then, then, um, then that's your view. But I hope that you would study and I would study and we would come to this uh, realization or come to this conclusion as we read the word of God and say, Jesus, what is it that you want to teach me? So read Revelation chapter four with me. There's 11 verses and then we're just going to look at some key things in there. And if you've studied Revelation 4 before, then, then I, I think that there's some things that sometimes we can miss. So read with me in Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones 
And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." crazy scene right revelation 4 i mean if you read this with fresh eyes and you just think about what this was like for john i mean we could read this oh yeah revelation 4 i kind of understand you know the different parts about this and what this signifies what this means just imagine being john and this is what you see i mean i would freak out (laughs) i would freak out to see one of these creatures one of these angels right but all of these things all in this this vision that god gives to john must have been overwhelming. So after these things, after what things? The things pertaining to the church age. Remember, remember Revelation 3 ended with the words, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. How many times is the church mentioned in 4 through the end of the book? Zero. There's a change in scenery. There's something that has taken place right here in Revelation chapter 4. And I believe that it's at this point that the rapture occurs. Um, When? After these things. It says that there was a door standing open in heaven. Remember, Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So when we open up the door of our hearts to Jesus, he opens up the door of heaven to us. So... John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, here's a change of scenery. Where is this taking place? In heaven. Okay, there's a door that's open in heaven. Chapters 2 and 3, here's a scene on earth. Chapter 4, we see that the scene starts to take place in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now, notice it says a voice like a trumpet. You ever hear of the blast of a trumpet? Anyone ever play trumpet? All right. Got got a couple of trumpet players here. All right. And you you should bring it next time. Just blast that trumpet from where you are. It's, It's shocking how loud a trumpet is. But I don't want you to think of the brass trumpet. I want you to think of a shofar. And when you think of that, understand that in the same way that our military has reverie or they have taps you know there's different trumpet calls that signify different things when you read the bible when the trumpet or the shafar is blown what happens is it signifies gathering together of god's people for different reasons signals for different things happening 
Sometimes it's gathering together for worship. Other times it's gathering together for battle. There's something that is signified when this voice occurs that is like a trumpet. So in Exodus, gathered people together for worship. In Leviticus, the trumpet of of Jubilee to proclaim freedom and liberty. In 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to read this to you in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo, that's that word where we get rapture from, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So I believe that that trumpet is symbolic of, of God signaling a change in his people that God is doing something new in this section that we were at in Revelation chapter 4. And notice this voice, what did it say? It was like a trumpet, but it said, come up here and I will show you things which must take place, again, metatauta, after this. So come up here. John, you've got to climb up. You've got to see this. You've got to check this out. When I was at Azusa Pacific um, University, we did this thing called walkabout. And walkabout was a training to become an RA where they take you on a backpacking experience um, an eight-day backpacking experience where you're in the backwoods, and by day one, day two, you don't see another human being other than the people that are in your group. So most of us had never done that before. There was some training that was involved in, in doing it. But one of the trails that we went on was a trail called the Hemlock Trail. Hemlock Trail was one of the most difficult trails that I, I've ever hiked because you're at altitude, um, you're at the high country in, in the high Sierras. You can't breathe. You're carrying a 60-pound pack on your back. And every step is like 18 inches to 24 inches cut out of this mountain of granite. And so on every step, you're doing like a one-legged squat. You're going uphill, and, you're just, you're doing, and then your legs are shaking. And you're just trying to get up there, and you're just thinking, there's pain in your lungs, there's pain in your legs, there's pain in your back, and, and you're just feeling like, is this, is this going to be worth it? Like, why, why are we doing this? And they're kind of pushing you beyond your limits a little bit. One of the guys on our team was just this behemoth of an athlete that, you know, hey, do you need help with your pack? And like, just like, boom, 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 bounding up. You know, and he just gets up this hemlock trail so much faster than any of us. And, and we're just, I mean, we're not hiking, looking up. I'm just looking at the next, we're just taking one step after another step after another step. But but he already got to the top and he drops his pack and we pause and we look up at him and his, his face, it just looks like he, he's stunned by the view that's in front of him. His jaw drops open and he's just staring at it. He's like, guys, you have to get up here. You have to see this. And we're thinking, there's nothing that is worth what we're going through right now where that doesn't, mo-. he's like, no. You, and then as soon as another person would get up, same reaction. They'd get up to the top and just drop their pack and eyes would get wide and they would, they would stare. And so when we finally get up there, what we saw is that when we got to the top, there was a, a river, you know, a stream that was flowing and it would come down right where you get to the very top of the mountain and it formed this natural water slide into this alpine lake with trees in the background and the sun shining. 
crystal clear and you could see trout in the water because it was so clear you could see 30 feet down and just beautiful and the green of the water and the, the, the way that the sun was shining, just an incredible, brilliant scene. And then the leader of our group says, this is a water slide and you guys could go down it. And after hiking all day in the heat of the sun and then taking turns going off this naturally formed alpine slide going off of a rock and then flying 20 feet in the air and then hitting the water and then you come up out of breath because it's so cold. <gasps> you're swimming and it looks like you're hydroplaning on the top of the water because it's so cold and it's exhilarating. And you try to explain that to someone that is in the middle of the trail and they can't, you, you can't put into words what it feels like. Try, try to explain what skydiving feels like to someone, right? If you've ever, you know, skydived or, or surfing, if you're a surfer or any of these experiences. And here's John who gets to see heaven and he gets a glimpse at heaven. And then he's trying to, in his human words, explain to us what he sees, doing the best that he can. It's like, he's on his cell phone going, guys, this is amazing. You gotta, you gotta see this. There's like this, this throne here and like using the best vivid imagery that he can. In verse two, it says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, the throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. What an, that's the first thing that he sees. There's a book, I don't remember who wrote it, it's called like the four people that you meet in heaven or something like that about like different people that you see, interview. I'm not, there's not gonna be a single person that's there that I'm like, okay, I couldn't wait to get here because I wanted to interview this guy. You know, it's like when I get there, the throne, you know, that God's throne is there. And John explaining it to us is saying immediately I was in the spirit. Now, what does this mean? Some different possibilities. He was filled with the spirit. He had a vision of heaven like Paul. I believe that it, in a sense, it, it represents where it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's the sight of heaven. And when he gets to heaven, it's the throne of God. So the next point, the throne of God in verse three, it says, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Notice the word like that is continued. Um, it's repeated over and over in this section of Revelation. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. Because, I mean, what can, you, what can you compare that to? The scene in heaven, it's like things. And he's trying to use things that they might know and kind of compare it the best that he can. It's called a simile. Trying to compare something that we know and understand to something that you're trying to describe. And this throne, the word throne occurs 46 times in the book of Revelation, but 13 times in this chapter. What does a throne represent? Royalty. A king sits on a throne. It represents authority. You know the cool thing about heaven? Every four years, it's not like, okay, he's off the throne, someone else is on the throne. Okay, eight years later, he's off the throne, there's someone else on the throne. God is always on the throne. God is always in control. And his authority never changes. At, at a, a, you know, as a human being, John says, it's like a jasper stone, which is a clear stone like a diamond. You know, the throne is kind of like that. And then it, it's kind of also like a sardis stone, which is red like a ruby. 
he, he's just trying to explain how incredible it is. Like this crystal clear thing, and at the same time, there's some red there. I think of the light of God, Jesus being the light of the world. I think of the blood of Christ and redemption. But then there's a rainbow all around the throne. A rainbow is a full spectrum of light, but in this case, it's an emerald. It's like a, a green rainbow that's kind of around. Now, when we look at rainbows, I, I think it's really cool because it's very seldom that I see a rainbow and I could see the very start of it and the end of it in the arc you know, of, of the rainbow. Sometimes I see a glimpse of it, a part of it, but once in a while you'll see the full rainbow, but this rainbow is completed. It's a circle. It's all around the throne. And because it's all around the throne, I think there's some significance there because remember, what is a rainbow? After all, a rainbow is God's covenant to Noah. I'm never going to destroy the world again with a flood. Isn't that crazy that the rainbow was God's intention to tell people that I judge the earth because of your sin, but I'm not going to do it again in the same way? And yet we could use rainbow for any other myriad of things today. But this rainbow is completed. You know what God, I believe, is showing John and showing us is that he keeps his covenants. God keeps his promises. This completed rainbow. And I just think of the creativity of God, the colors. So many times we picture heaven as just white, clouds with chubby, you know, little babies, you know, playing harps with diapers and they're floating around and that's, that's heaven. I don't see that. You know, I, I look at it and I see brilliance and colors i think of the east coast the pictures i've seen of a patchwork quilt during the fall that's all god that's his creativity you think of rainbows and just god creative and colorful and and seasons in verse four around the throne now here's horizontally around the throne are 24 thrones and on the thrones i saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads now, these 24 thrones, God is on the throne, but these 24 thrones, I believe, are representatives of the people of God. The Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus chose 12 apostles. So I believe that this is representative of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And, and you know, when they are around the throne, um, if you ever watch the presidential address, the inaugural, or I mean the presidential address, when, when he addresses Congress, do you ever see how the Republicans and Democrats are sitting on both sides? Then the president will say something, and like this side will all stand up and cheer, and this side will sit there with their arms crossed. And then he'll say something else, and then this side stands up, and they cheer, and this side, they sit there with their arms crossed, kind of angry. And then once in a while, he'll say something so agreeable and acceptable to everyone that both sides stand up. This is not the scene in heaven. Everyone in heaven all agrees that Jesus reigns, that God is on the throne, and all of them worship. And there's a unification, there's a unity in that worship. They have these crowns, which are victor's crowns. They're like golden wreaths. They're like our gold medals. And just imagine after the Olympics, someone winning a gold medal and saying, I'm so unworthy, and here's this leader, and throwing their gold medal at his feet because... They are so unworthy, and even this honor that they've gotten is so small compared to what this person should be honored. That's what it looks like in heaven. And the crowns that we receive are to cast at Jesus' feet, 
to say, Jesus, I, I can't believe that I don't even deserve to be here, but you've used me, and then you've given me a crown, and this crown really is your crown because you've given it to me, and in, in worship of who is really worthy, we cast our crowns upon Jesus and at his feet. Verse five, it says, and from the throne proceed lightnings and thunders and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We already looked at that in previous chapters, the sevenfold spirit of God, lightning, thunder. Um, Not like California thunder, or at least not like California thunder here. If you've ever been like in Mammoth, California, Mammoth Lakes, June Lakes, if you've ever been caught in a thunderstorm there, um, a, a few years ago, Deanna and I were in Wisconsin. That was a thunderstorm. We were about ready to go on a lake. We decided not to go. We went inside of the bed and breakfast, and we were just sitting there, and this thunderstorm hit, and a tornado hit the lake that we would have been on. And there was lightning, and there was thunder. And the thunder there, the, the power was, was blacked out, and you could feel the thunder in your chest. Kind of like the THX Dolby when they... I, I love that. I love thunder. I, I think thunder just... It makes me feel like the majesty and the power of God is there. And, you know, and and this is what's happening from the throne. Lightning, thunder, voices. In verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So there's a sea of glass, kind of like the, the basin at the tabernacle or at the temple. And around the throne are these four living creatures full of eyes weird but they see everything which represents god the spirit of god being able to see all in verse seven the first living creature was like a lion no he wasn't a lion he was like a lion and the seven second living creature was like a calf and the third was like a man and the fourth was like you know like a, a flying eagle and so you have these creatures that in many ways, could represent like the gospel. You know, Matthew uh, presents Jesus as a, a lion. He's the king. And Mark represents Jesus as a, a perfect man, or I mean, a, as a servant, like an ox. And then Luke represents Jesus like the perfect man. And John represents Jesus like an eagle and his deity, that Jesus is God. But these creatures all around are giving glory. And in verse 8, the four living creatures each having six wings or full of eyes around and within. Now remember, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of those verses are direct references to the Old Testament. And if you want to see this scene in other places, read Isaiah chapter 6. You know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and he was on his throne and his, his robe filled the, the temple with glory. Read Ezekiel chapter 1 about the cherubim and these um, created angels that are all around the throne. And then we close with this last point here, the worship of God. It says, and they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God was in the past, he is constant living. He is to come, omega. He's the future. He's the alpha and the omega. He's constant. And so there should be constant worship. And holy, 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 what is that? Set apart. He's different. He's different in his love. His love is greater. 
He's different in his omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's different in his power. He's omnipotent. He's different in his knowledge. He's omniscient. He's different in his righteousness. God is good. He's different in his justice. He's just and he's merciful. And then it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. It's by God's will that everything exists. And when we give honor to the Lord this morning, and as we spend some time just worshiping God, I I really hope and pray that the book of Revelation this morning gives us a small glimpse in our sanctified imagination to try to picture what this is like. To remind us that when we join in this chorus, when we join in the worship of heaven, It's an amazing thing that when we leave this world, we're going to enter into the greatest worship service ever. We'll be ushered into people that we know that have gone before us, all joined together, nothing dividing. There's not going to be arguments over differences. Those who worship the Lord, all of the glory being given to God alone, humbling themselves before the throne realizing Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so this morning, God, I believe, would be blessed and God desires that we don't worship him just like that in heaven, but that we begin in our worship and we worship him today. So when we sing, sing to the Lord, sing unhindered. When we live our lives in worship of God, let's, let's live our lives in such a way that those crowns are for him. And you know what? The only thing that we are going to be able to take with us to heaven is other people. We're not going to be able to pack anything else. And and no one comes to the Father except, you know, to God unless the Father draws him. But you know what? He uses messengers, doesn't he? He uses us to be the people that give the message of the gospel, that tell people. So this morning, as we worship the Lord, let's also take it upon ourselves and say, Jesus Show me where I could be useful in your kingdom. Again, God is ascending God, and he sent you. If, you. if you know the Lord, he sent you. Where has he sent you? What has he sent you to do? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to thank you. Lord, it's already been a full morning. Lord, with um, just praying for the Browers and just hearing how you're working in their lives and praying for the Shivelys. But Lord, this morning as we open up to your word and we we saw in Revelation 4, I pray that you would remind us that this world is not our home. And so, God, I pray that you would motivate us, motivate us by your love, motivate us, Lord, by, by your grace, motivate us by the fact that, Lord, if, if you only gave us your justice, that none of us would be worthy, none of us earns heaven none of us attains that on our merits but jesus it's because of what you've done for us right now as we're praying if you've never received christ as your savior you've never asked him into your life and you've never asked him to receive you that you would do that this morning that you would open up your heart and say jesus forgive me for my sins and jesus come into my life
and fill me with your spirit. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Thank you that you died for me. I pray that you would take control of my life. And Father, for those of us that have received Christ, we've been regenerated, we've been born again by the Spirit. We pray that as we worship you, that we would sing to you because you're worthy. We pray, Lord, that you would draw out of us the worship that you would desire and the worship that you deserve. All glory, all power, all honor is yours. God, you're holy. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness because we're not holy. Lord, I pray for your sanctification because, Lord, while you cover us in the blood of Christ, you still tell us, be holy for I am holy. God, help us not to give up in that walk of righteousness. And, Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to be open to you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.